uh, we're all very religious. Uh, an atheist is just as religious as a devout Muslim, uh, because an atheist has a strong framework of belief that gives their life meaning and direction and hope. It just doesn't involve God. Uh, an LGBTQI activist is just as religious, you could say, as an Anglican minister. Strong framework of belief that gives meaning, direction, hope. Uh, if we correctly define religion as a framework of belief, then uh, perhaps we're all very religious. Right? We're all believers in something. And I wonder, what is it uh, that you really believe in? that you place your hope in? I wonder if you sort of scratch beneath all the surface, uh, what is it that gives you a sense of meaning uh, in your life? I think one thing you'll notice in a society like ours that has consciously shifted to secularism is an unconscious elevation of classic religiosity in other areas. It, it's like no matter how hard we try to escape it, it's sort of stitched into us. Now, Anzac Day is a classic example. The popularity of this day, I think, is, is ever-increasing in Australia, and it's certainly a good thing to pause and remember those who have served our country in the theatre of war. Uh, I think it's becoming even more of a family event. It's definitely getting a lot more airtime on the news over the past 20, 30 years. Uh, listen to this list and have a think if any of this sounds religious to you. Uh, go to a dawn service to watch the rising of the sun. Uh, gather around shrines. Recite set liturgy. Have a moment of meditation. Reflect on a larger story of sacrifice. Hope to one day perhaps make a pilgrimage to Anzac Cove. Uh, consider our entertainment. MasterChef. Uh, that's a bit old now, uh, The Block, The Bachelor, these are not food, house and relationship shows. Uh, they are stories of deep searches for meaning, direction and hope. If you do X, then you'll get Y. That's the promise. Uh, if the contestants can just appease the priesthood or the gatekeepers, the judges, the property buyers, the romantic interest, then the winner will be set free and find life in pursuing their food dream, establishing financial security, or finding the love of their life. If you do X, you'll get Y, a framework of belief that gives our life meaning and direction and hope. So may I humbly suggest that perhaps uh, we're all in the Western world, we're all very religious, we're all believers. And to be clear, I'm certainly not saying this from a place of distant judgment. Uh, I'm right in the middle of it. Um, I was a MasterChef addict for about four seasons. Um, I crave a good self-help book, especially at this time of year. Uh, I always think my life would be just a little bit better if I could. And I was saying this morning that it's a true story. Just this morning, I was researching the Fast 800 diet because someone had sent me a link and apparently... In the first three months, you can drop lots of kilos and it's all scientific. <laughs> so I was just flipping through the pages. I haven't actually bought any products yet, but I was close. 
But this is who we are, isn't it? Like, this is who we are. So if this is the case, uh, what does Jesus say about religion? And the answer is nothing. Jesus never used the word religion. So I guess that's it. (laughs) Enjoy the supper. I think we've got coffee and we've got one more song. (laughs) Not quite. Uh, Jesus never used the word religion. But his whole mission is about inviting us into a framework of meaning, direction and hope. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. And so it turns out he actually has a lot to say uh, to each one of us in our search. And today's Bible passage is all about Jesus' interaction with the central frame of meaning, direction and hope of his day, which was the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you're new to the Bible uh, or just sort of upskilling after a few years away, it's helpful to know that the Bible is 66 different books claiming to chart the interaction of one God with his created universe. And it charts the actions and efforts of this one God to rescue and reunite all of us with himself. After we've rejected his loving rule, and that has plunged ourselves into a kind of a mess of selfishness and pride. And so we find that God's promise in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, is that he's going to rescue and reunite us through one little nation, Israel. And so, understandably, that's why the rest of the Bible follows this one little nation. What's God going to do? And central to this nation is a building called the temple. Now, the temple symbolized God's presence with Israel. Uh, It was at the temple that you'd get the full experience of God's judgment and God's grace. Uh, For it was at the temple that people would pray and present sacrifices, which would place the punishment for their sin on another, an animal. But in today's passage from Mark, we have Jesus overturning the tables and causing chaos in this temple. And either side of it, we have this odd interaction with a fig tree. And so the question is, what's going on here? So let's have a quick look and then circle back around to see if it has any implications for us today. So as it turns out, as you go through the Bible, the fig tree was actually an Old Testament symbol for Israel, and many think here in this particular case, uh, the temple in Israel. In effect, the fig tree narrative uh, at the start and the end of this little narrative tells us that Jesus is in fact cursing the practices in the temple and declaring that its time is done, the temple's over. And this is sort of crazy talk from the Rabbi Jesus. It's like our Federal Minister of Education, Jason Clare, declaring that all schools are going to be closing. Or it's a hardcore environmentalist saying that we should stop all green energy. Or it's a gym junkie saying we should close all gyms. Uh, It's just crazy. The fig tree's time is over. The temple is done. What's going on? So in verse 15, we read this. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. 
And as he taught them, he says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? Okay, so historical context here, which will be helpful. In Jerusalem, uh, it was common for there to be a market near the temple. Uh, At this market, you could buy animals and doves to then take to the temple as your sacrifice. And in addition to this, there was also a business changing money from Gentile to Jewish coinage, because Jewish coinage was considered an unblemished donation at the temple. Now, up until AD 30, this market was located on the Mount of Olives. But Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, had just made changes to allow these traders access to the outer court of the temple to do their business. And this might seem actually quite an efficient move by Caiaphas. Until you learn that the outer courts of the temple was an area specifically designed for non-Jewish people to come and worship God. And I assume for the most part, not all of us tonight, but for the most part of us, we are probably non-Jewish. And so, the outer court was our court. This was the space for everyone and anyone to come and pray and sacrifice and connect with God. One God rescuing and reuniting all of humanity with Himself. Caiaphas had made the executive decision to block this space with markets. And guess who had a significant percentage of the markets and their profits? You guessed it, Caiaphas and some of the other chief temple priests. What Jesus saw when He came to Jerusalem uh, was religion that was more about pride, greed and racial prejudice than about God rescuing and reconnecting us all with Himself. What Jesus saw was religion more about pride, greed and racial prejudice than about God rescuing and reconnecting all of us with Himself. Uh, Ron Hubbard, who's the founder of Scientology, was famously quoted as saying, the quickest way to become a millionaire is to start your own religion. Although I was thinking with house prices the way they are, that's not much. Um, So, how did the chief priests and others respond to Jesus' assault on the temple? Well, in verse 18, we read this, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him for... They feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, we're going to be exploring uh, the destructive pattern of operating out of a place of fear on our weekend away this coming March. Uh, So, if you haven't registered yet, make sure you come along. That's not the central theme, we're looking at 1 Peter, but one of the parts we'll be looking at is that very thing. Uh, But for now, here, we're going to note that the religious leaders of the day had built a profitable business around the temple. They weren't concerned necessarily about God being misrepresented by Jesus. They were afraid that they would lose their lucrative business. Now, if you think this was a recent phenomenon in the first century Israel, uh, you'd actually be wrong, because what Jesus is doing here in Mark 11 is deliberately imitating, well, you can't say for certain, but I think he's deliberately imitating uh, what the prophet Jeremiah did 600 years before at the exact same location, the exact same building, the exact same people, but generations before. 
Uh, you can look up Jeremiah chapters 6 to 8 at another time and have a look. Uh, but Jeremiah's judgment on the people was because they had a near superstitious trust in the temple and a racial prejudice that was justified with God talk. It was the attitude that we can do whatever we like with our lives, but once a year we can come to the temple, we chant, we give our sacrifices, then surely everything is okay. And also it was the heart that loves to be an insider and to hate the outsider. Jeremiah said, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. We're safe to do all those detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. I think what Jesus is doing in Mark 11, what he does throughout his teaching, what the prophets of the Old Testament had done for years, is warn us that our attempts to do religion, that is, to find meaning, direction, hope, will often, or perhaps always, be twisted by our inbuilt greed and prejudice. Uh, just like, it's almost like we can't help but be religious, even if we don't like religion, we also can't help messing it all up with our own pride and greed and prejudice. The temple was a good and powerful symbol of God's grace, but very soon it was turned into a get-out-of-jail-free card for Israel's self-centered lives. And perhaps such practices uh, may not be restricted only to people in ancient cultures. Uh, could it be that many belief systems and modern ideologies, however virtuous they appear, are crafted to allow us as individuals to do whatever we want with our life, while occasionally requiring a certain practice or voicing support for a popular ideology that sets our conscience at ease and lets us know we're in the good group? Could it be that perhaps we all naturally gravitate towards anything that's just going to operate as a get-out-of-jail-free card for our own self-centred lives. I said at the start that Jesus' words um, are contra controversial. But if what Jesus taught is true, then in the end, all our attempts to secure our own meaning and direction and hope uh, will fail. Because even with our best intentions, and we do have good intentions, our own salvation stories will be crippled by our own brokenness. Somehow, I mean, you know how it is, somehow we'll find a way to make it about ourselves. Uh, we can't save ourselves, according to Jesus, and nor can any single virtuous cause or self-help book or good intention. Now, of course, this would be a terribly depressing reality uh, if that was the end of it, uh, if the fig tree just died. Uh, but of course, uh, if we don't see the, the next stage in the Gospel of Mark, you see the same Jesus who condemned the practice of the temple 
uh, returned to Jerusalem a second time, not to condemn the temple, but to be condemned himself, uh, to bear our sin in his body, to rise from the dead, and then say, come follow me, I'll show you the way. True religion is about receiving meaning, direction and hope, uh, not earning it for ourselves. True religion is actually about a transformation of your very selfhood rather than just a justification of our selfishness. And with that being the case, Jesus and what he has done is really the only entry point into true religion. One of the fruits or results of this, of course, one of the fruits of true religion that Jesus secures for us has to be humility. You see, if the, if the basic frame of religion is if you do X, you'll get Y, uh, Jesus comes to flip it all on its head. Uh, he fulfills the temple in himself when he says, okay, I'll do X so that you can have Y. And if that's true, then the response to Jesus, the life of Jesus, must be one of humility. Because from the day we turn to him, we realize, wow, he did all the heavy lifting and I get all the inheritance. False religion will lead us to a path of arrogance. I've done X, I get Y. You haven't done X. So, unlucky. But Jesus leads us into humility. Look what he has done. And so, whether you find yourself in a position of arrogance, and we've all been there, claiming that you'll cancel or reject anyone who doesn't share your view of God, or solar energy, or sexual expression or political parties, or parenting strategies. Or, the other end, you find yourself in a position of genuine despair, realising that nothing you have pursued has ever really scratched that itch of meaning, direction and hope. Uh, the reason Jesus says to all of us, come follow me. Let go of your arrogance, because you don't have all the answers. Let go of your despair, because there is real hope. He rose from the dead. And come follow me. In his recent book, Surprised by Jesus, Dane Ortland writes, a Christian is not someone who has been enrolled in the moral hall of fame. A Christian is a happily recovering Pharisee. And so, may you and I come to know that our religious hearts were created to receive meaning, direction and hope in God himself, uh, not create it from our own dedication to a cause. And may you and I be set free in receiving such forgiveness and grace from God to live our lives in response to this incredible God, in great humility, supported by this great community of recovering Pharisees here at St. Mark's. Let me pray.
Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, your word says to us that you have set eternity in the hearts of every person. Lord, we thank you that you have stitched us together with a longing to know the bigger picture, uh, to know you. And Lord, we thank you that in your grace and your goodness, uh, you have died for our sins. And your son, having risen from the grave, gives us your spirit, that your presence may be within us and changing us. Uh, lead us all, Lord, towards uh, true religion, life-changing religion, one that leads us to humility and grace, meaning, direction and real hope. Guide us all in this tonight and through this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we are about to sing. Um, and in the chorus of this song, it says, there is, no one, there is no one that is above God or is greater than God. His throne has remained and will remain forever. Uh, so we can trust in him and find all our hope and meaning in God. Uh, so let's stand and sing about that now. <laughs> 